try to rely less on luck in business strategy. So you really try to position yourself so that you and you you need to take risks. Um, but the risk you take in poker, which is you know there's a, a 66% chance you're going to lose the hand and be out of the tournament, you never want to take in, in business. My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers, about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Two decades ago, Andrew Bassett's younger brother Paul was trying to buy a house in Melbourne. Trawling through newspapers, they began to wonder whether there was a smarter way of organising real estate listings. As the two corporate lawyers drew up a business plan, They quickly realised that if the internet was to truly transform a sector, it was more likely to be employment than real estate. And so Seek was born. Today, Seek is one of Australia's most successful companies. It operates in 18 countries, lists over 4 million jobs. Each month, over 400 million people visit its site. The company is worth over $6 billion. Andrew is its CEO. What strikes you about him is that he's delightfully low-key. Named EY's Entrepreneur of the Year a few years ago, he lacks swagger, dresses casually and seems to relish working in a workplace where the signature colour is hot pink and arcade games adorn the foyer. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, Now, when you and Paul started Seek, uh, you were a lawyer, but you did have a background in computer science and and, and management. Actually, actually Paul was a lawyer. I had been a lawyer, but I was a management consultant at the time. There you go. And I I had a weak, a very poor computer science degree as part of my background, but that that wasn't much help. (laughs) Had you thought for a long time about starting a business? Um, Look, I always thought we'd do our own thing. I was not much of an employee. Um, And then Paul had the idea looking for a house, so we were excited about the idea of having a crack at something. At the time, we weren't really internet users. Um, we hadn't really run our own businesses or been involved in direct businesses. So it was a bit of a stretch, but we thought we'd have a crack at it. So you, you had used the internet, but... I, I hadn't. I started using the internet to do the business plan, so... I love I really it. Was, That's great. I really was finding out about the internet um, for, for that reason. So I'd never used it before. So it was early days. Uh, and at what point in that preparation did you segue from thinking this is going to be a real estate business to thinking this is going to be an employment um, business? Quite quickly, you know. So I think the original business plan was real estate, cars and employment. Um, and then I think we just decided employment was a bigger category. Um, we thought it was more amenable to online. We liked the idea of helping people with jobs more than cars or real estate. Not this, you know, they're, they're um, perfectly good industries. We just liked the idea of jobs first. So I think we quite quickly went from being real estate first to employment first. I think it was real estate second, cars third. We got busy, so we never got to them. So there's a business plan somewhere which has uh, seat all going, going into all, all, all three. All three, but because on other measures we did better than the business plan, the shareholders have never really given us a hard time over that. So, Did you worry about the fact you were going from a stable paycheck into being an entrepreneur? Um, look, we didn't, not too much. You know, the, the, the worst case, you know, we had very supportive wives and the, the worst case scenario for us to some extent was we could go back to being a lawyer, being a management consultant. My employers sort of warned me that I'd go backwards in my career, but they'd take me back, but they'd probably set me back a few years. It, was, it didn't really feel like it was a, an existential risk. Um, and probably, to be honest, entrepreneurs don't really think that way. They think of the opportunity um, rather than worrying about the, the challenges or the things that could go wrong. 
Where does the entrepreneurial drive come from? Do you have parents or entrepreneurs? Um, Look, I I do suspect because of the risk aversion aspect where entrepreneurs tend not to be particularly risk averse. I think some of it is being made rather than, being born rather than made to some extent um, is, is my suspicion. But, you know, I think we always felt, you know, that... We had a crack at being successful. You know, the challenge for us, there were 100 competitors and we had yeah. to win. <laughs> so the winner takes all games. So we knew going into it, there was a serious chance of failure. Um, but it just didn't bother us as much as it might have bothered other people. Why do you think you were able to take on these huge established empires? I mean, Fairfax and News Corp are sort of looking ropey now, but if you go back to the 1990s, these are massive, uh, long-standing Australian companies. What what gave you the kind of chutzpah to think you could take them on? Yeah, no, look, it's a good question. I think we, we kept asking ourselves in the business plan, what, what were they going to do about the internet? How would they deal with the challenge? I probably put myself in the role of the, of the challenger, saying, you know, what, what are these guys going to do? Um, as a result of the internet coming through. And I, I found it very hard to find strong strategies for them in a world where for us we could come to work every day saying we're going to use the technology to make life better for job seekers, make life better for hires, build a better marketplace. Mm. Um, Fairfax and News had to come to work every day saying how do we stop the technology from taking away our beautiful rivers of gold. It's a very different set of problems and it's very hard to come up with strategies to deal with that sensibly, even though everyone knows if you don't um, cannibalise yourself, someone else will. It's hard to actually pull the trigger, if that makes sense. Yeah. I just have to segue for a moment. I assume you're a regular news consumer. Do you ever feel slightly guilty yeah. about the fact that your business <laughs> no, no, model has kind of undermined the, all, this traditional democratic institution no, in newspapers? All, all the time and all the time. And if you look at even at the, at the political debate now, it's just, it's, all, there's no doubt that, look, it wasn't just us, and I think if it hadn't been us, it would have been someone else. So I don't, I don't feel too guilty, although I was, if I'm going to digress a bit, I did get, was a little bit the victim of some bad journalism not too long ago. And when I complained about it, somebody said to me, if anyone deserves to cop the bad journalism, as a result, it's, 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 it's you. And I, I said, you know, it was sort of fair call, that's okay. But um, look, it, it, does, it does trouble me, that the, the money that was, when we did our original business plan, more than 100% of the profits came from classifieds. So it was clear that once classifieds started to go, the newspapers would be in a lot of trouble, and it does trouble me. Hmm. But I guess, as you say, you look around the world, and this is this is happening uh, in markets where Seek doesn't doesn't have a presence. If it so. wasn't us, it would have been someone else. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so, in those those early days, you've got this uh, sort of classic uh, challenge of an internet startup, where you have to grow fast, which means that you're not making very much very much money, but you're spending an awful lot. How do you deal with the psychology of that? Of, of basically burning through piles of cash as you're trying to build build up build up a user base and not turning a profit, which would be anathema for most traditional businesses. Yeah, we've got a lot of things wrong, by the way. There's, there was third partner, Matthew Rockman, who, who joined us at the start. And, but the one thing that was, we sort of all three agreed on and we got right was we recognised that it was a winner-takes-all game. We recognised that eventually Fairfax and News Corp would get it right and be super aggressive. There was already people like Monster, the US giant, um, was already in Australia when we launched and a bunch of other competitors. So I think we realised if we were going to win, we had to get big. We had to be the first to crack in the marketplace. We recognised we had to build the marketplace first and then worry about making money second. So all of our strategies were aligned with that. So part of that was a recognition that we needed to lose a lot of money before we'd make money. And we were fortunate we were making enough progress on the metrics that we were telling our shareholders to focus on, which were the job ads, the job seekers, the applications, those underlying marketplace metrics, that they were okay to continue funding us until um, I think about five years and $25 million later before, 25 millions of losses before we started making money. And we're fortunate to have shareholders support that. 
So we sort of knew that would be the case, and that makes sense. It, it all sounds so easy looking looking backwards, yeah. and and you, you have this, this this sort of very uh, f- sort of phlegmatic approach to uh, to talking about it. But no, well, it the, was easy. No, no. <laughs> but the dot com crash comes along just uh, the the year after you launch, right? You launch in 1998, uh, and then the tech wrecks uh, there, there a year. Or two yeah, we, we had a few challenges, so it, was, it certainly wasn't easy. Um, but um, one was the tech wreck. It was a bit later. No, you're right. Uh, Sorry, it's early 2000s. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was a, sort of a bit of a challenging period um, for us because it did change things a lot. But, you know, I think the thing for us is we were always focused. We never um, – we were very close. I think when the tech wreck happened, we were within weeks of IPOing. I think the, the day when NASDAQ first fell, we um, had an IPO, to, you know, a prospectus ready to sign, and then we said we'd better hold off, and then it held off an IPO, which is a lucky thing. Lucky, mm. lucky we weren't out. But we were always focused on the fundamentals of the business, which was helping people find jobs, helping organisations find people. And after the tech wreck, that was still happening. Uh, the challenge would have been finding capital at a decent valuation. We were fortunate the round of capital we raised before the tech wreck kind of got us through to profitability. So the timing was such that the impact was a lot less than it might have been. It wasn't fun, though. I won't pretend it was fun. Absolutely. Uh, did you... How did you handle the stress at that? At that um, well, okay, with stress, if it makes sense. So it's, it's um, you know, there was, we, had the, we had that, we had the, um, we had the GFC hit. And it's kind of funny because when the GFC hit, our, our share price went from about $9 to about $2. But it was kind of, hey, that all. You know, we knew at some point the market would, would crash. We actually had some work that we'd done. It's when the market crashes, this is what we should do, you know, pull mm. it out of the, you know, dig it out of the hole and, and do it. It's... it's it sounds strange, but because I worried about it and then when it happened, we were still making money, not as much money. We are still around. We felt strong. We felt that actually we'd still invest and go forward um, when everyone else was panicking. It actually didn't stress us out too much because this is, you know, worrying about it happening wasn't as bad as the actuality. So, mm-hmm. you know, my stress levels, if anything, didn't really go up in those periods. It made sense. And th- that was because you had done the preparatory work to think yeah, about what just, the, uh, it just what wasn't, as bad as it, wasn't as bad as it might have been. So for us, we still made money through the GFC, for example. Mm. We were still getting the metrics. We were still driving the metrics during the dot-com crash. The dot-com crash did have some stress because we were getting fresh to lay off staff. And one of the things I'm proudest of that, that Paul and Matt and I, again, were all agreed on was um, we are getting pressure from the board and from others to lay off staff because really it was touch and go whether we get to profitability. One of the things we really didn't want to do was get in that path, even though most dot-com companies were, were, were aggressively doing it, because we knew that our culture, our people, were really the key competitive advantage we had. And once you start randomly laying off staff just to, to get costs through or something similar, it's hard to ever get the culture back. So mm. there was a degree of tenseness around the fact that it was touch and go to, to get to profitability. Um, but beyond that, I think we just, it just was, the, we always knew the fundamentals were working. We always saw the underlying things that we were focused on heading in the right direction. And so the noise around us tended not to bother us as much as it might have. You, you seem to have quite a, a, a positive workplace culture in the, in the lift. I saw you've got uh, ads for Hack9, your, uh, your, your internal ideas, ideas competition. Uh, the, a lot of profiles have kind of talked about the, the way in which you try and encourage ideas to emerge from uh, employees. How has that come about? Is that, was that been uh, a conscious decision of uh, Matt and Paul and yourself from the outset or is it just something that sort of developed? There's, there's two different things. There's one is I think the, the, the people piece was always with us, so the, the fact that people are important. So when we, we sat down however many years ago, Paul and I and Matt had a lot of passion, not many skills, um, so we knew we'd be relying on other people 
Um, and and also we're competing with Fairfax News and Monsters, as I said before, and those guys had all the job seekers, all the hires, all the money. Um, so really, if we we're going to beat them, the only thing we could beat them on is our people being more passionate, more committed, more talented than theirs. And so I think we've always realised that having good people creating an environment where people wanted to come to work were empowered were, were you know positioned to do their best was the only way we could be successful so the culture piece was there from day one and we all agreed probably the innovation piece you pick up it's only been in the last five six years because i think you know going back the last 20 years i think we've always been entrepreneurial we only really figured out how to be innovative in the last six or seven years um, out of necessity as much as out of opportunity so how what what are your um approaches to innovation um there's a few things. Look, the starting point, you know, what really changed for us is going back six, seven years, we'd, we'd beaten the newspapers, we were flying along, the share price was very nice, that, you know, we we're doing well in international and education markets. But all of a sudden, we sort of woke up and realised that Indeed and LinkedIn, which were both very, very large US companies, um, LinkedIn now owned by Microsoft, obviously, were not only challenging us in Australia, but a stolen march in a lot of areas. We also realised the key battleground with those guys was going to be areas like product and tech and data and a range of things. And these guys had teams that were 20 times the size of ours and, and much more capable. And so we sort of, not panicked, but we realised we needed to change everything about what we did. So, you know, there were three or four concepts. I, I could spend an hour talking about it, so I'll try to cut myself short. But the the first thing we did was measure placements, which is how many people were responsible for placing in countries and in, in companies. And we were about 25%. The next best was 2.5%. But the the insight we got out of it was there were 75% of people that were not placed by us. So the urgency and the drive for innovation was we needed to stay in front of our competitors, but also we wanted to meet the needs of those 75% of people that we weren't meeting the needs of. And that led to a lot of drive around what do we need to do better in product and technology and data and AI, etc. 25% though means the typical Australian has probably been placed into a job by SEEK. Yeah, no, well, no, I mean, it's, we're in a good spot. It's now 33%. As I said, the next best is now about 4%. Mm. But we still have this argument that we can do more. <laughs> yeah. And so we talk about Nirvana, which is being responsible for 100% of placements in the country. We'll never get there, don't tell the staff, because they're all working out the ways, you know, what we need to do better um, to start moving towards that 100%. How much autonomy do they have to work on individual projects or to explore new um, it's, ideas? It's, it's, look, it's, it's a fair bit of, there's a bit of both. So there's a fair bit of stuff and things like the hackathon are really great. So out of the hackathon comes actually projects that we ship. That, you know, there's a shipping award every year that the guys are taking off their other work and they just work on their project to, to deliver. And there's a bunch of stuff that's happened like that. Um, a fair bit of strategy is top down as well, though, but there's so much stuff that we could be doing, so many different ways we could go. Um, in terms of the marketplace we're in now, particularly now that we're talking about a broader human capital management market, mm. that unless we have a degree of top-down tri- um, top prioritisation um, and strategy, it becomes chaos. So there's an element of both. Uh, day a week working on your own projects, I assume, kind of works for Google, but you haven't found something that structured works for you? Uh, well, so the, the the approach of having uh, allocated time to work on, work on your own projects. Um, look, we don't we don't do anything on a regular basis beyond the hackathons. Um, beyond that, people are, are allocated projects that you know they, there's an element of choice in what they want to work in in the areas. Um, but it tends to be more top down projects rather than this idea that a day a week or two days a week people are on their own projects. Yeah. We don't do that. And as I said, it's such an unstructured world. There's so much. I think a big part of our strength has been correctly choosing where to play and how to play. Um, that tends to need to be done a bit top down. 
And tell me about how Seek Learning fits into your uh, your, your vision as to uh, managing people. Yeah, look, capital. originally, you know, I'd like to sound like a strategic genius. Originally, it was a little bit, it was a little bit accidental. We just recognised, you know, and it's been a, just education generally has been a wonderful area for us because um, our purpose has always been to help people with their careers. And at one point in time, that may be finding another job. But for many people, the best way to take their career forward is, is to have a career-related education, whether that be a three-year degree or, or shorter shorter course. Um, and so our role in there is one that we're very proud of. Um, but it was a little bit accidental. We just realised people knocking at our door, education providers knocking at our door, looking for an audience. Um, I sort of set up an area for the site with another guy that we could barely find. It was so buried. Um, and all of a sudden we were driving quite large volumes to these education providers. That opened mm. our eyes and led to Seek Learning. And Seek Learning was very successful before the government changed its mind on some things and, and has, has led to a lot of other things in education that we're continuing with. So we've helped hundreds of thousands of students. We've actually got a better return to education financially than we have in um, employment. So we're very, very committed to education. Um, where do you think online education is going to go in the uh, Yeah, in the it's, it's not so much online education. I think one of the things we want to play a role in where we see SEEK helping a lot, and to be honest, we're committed to this even though we, we haven't figured out how we can make any money from it, whether we can at all. It's just it's un, such an uncertain world with so much change in terms of jobs disappearing over here and, and being gained over here, the skills you need. Um, are not clear to everyone what skills you need to make yourself employable in the future. Even once you decide what skills are appropriate for you and what you need, finding out where to get the education, it's very mixed in terms of whether you get it quality or poor quality. We think we've got a very, very large role to play in helping guide people through that. So one of the services we're offering, um, again, we're not planning to charge for this, is to both put a lot of online resources to help people navigate through that, but also have people on the phone to speak to. that aren't salespeople that will get no commission, but will, for, will give you advice in terms of where your career might go. I think there's a massive need for that in the community. Are there broad pieces of advice that you'd offer to uh, to uh, somebody leaving school? Uh, oh, look, I've got look, I've got two kids. I've got an eighteen-year-old son. I've got four kids, but two kids about to leave school. One sort of year twelve, one in year eleven. I think they've made their own choice around you know doing something around science or engineering or something around recognizing the world's changing, and the more they can understand um, the new areas that are opening up, um, the more employable they'll be. I think that's a, a sensible position they've taken. It's not, there's not room for, for more accountants, more lawyers and more, more all sorts of things. But I think if you understand the, the, the future, <laughs> um, you've got more chance than if you're, you're operating in the past. And uh, in terms of when you're uh, acting as an employer rather than uh, placing, placing people, what do you look for in a new hire? Um, a lot of it's around that. Look, it's less the skills. The skills are important and it's probably become more important now that we've got a little bit more choice that we get skills as well as the right set of people. But a lot of it's the right set of people and we, you know, we've, we've honed in on a few attributes um, that we focus on and care a lot about in terms of they're the ones that have shown success in the past at Seek. I wanted one attribute originally, which was passion, that people are really passionate about what we're trying to achieve, our purpose around around just taking Seek forward. Um, but that didn't work, so we needed to also add a few others, like you know, um, judgment, decision-making was one. There's also something around the craft skills, and obviously for leadership, there's something around leadership skills. But it's really, it's really getting the right set of people, and you can kind of fill the gaps in their skills. You can't necessarily turn the wrong set of people into the right set of people. 
do you use uh, interviews? Do you use uh, tests? Uh, what do you What do you find is is the best way of learning about these particular qualities? That um, you're, uh, you're yeah, seeking? it's a good, it's a good question. We don't look. Um, I, I don't do a lot of recruiting directly, so you're asking the wrong person. My, my team's been very stable for a long time, but um, I think it's a bit of everything. But I think a lot does. You do need the interviews. You do need to meet the people. You do need to understand what drives them. So you can look at their CV and say they've done this and this, and it looks great, or it it, it looks like a good fit. Um, but understanding the people and their drivers and whether that fit really is important. So the people element you can never do without. And you've talked uh, previously about being productively paranoid, uh, about uh, being aware of, uh, of what, uh, what competitors might do. Where do you see the, that next set of disruption coming from? And, and also psychologically, how do you maintain the balance between uh, being productive, productively paranoid without being just straight out paranoid? Yeah, no, no, it's, it's, um, it's got the product, productively, it's a very, very good question you're asking me, you've done your research very well, which I appreciate, you've asked me very big questions, I'm trying not to talk too much, but you're making it hard. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we originally, um, you know, we originally wanted to put in there, as we, it was one of our values, one of our beliefs was around paranoia without productive in there, and uh, one of our directors pointed out quite right that paranoia is a mental illness, and it's, um, it, it tends to, to lead to bad outcomes, not good outcomes, and I think we couldn't find a better word, but we switched it to productively paranoid rather than something else. And I think we did have a period, I sort of told you before, about 2011, leading up to 2011, probably a couple of years, we should have seen the signs with people like LinkedIn, indeed, and we didn't. We were so happy with how, how we were going, we definitely got a bit complacent. So I think that the message now is there's always going to be competitors, and you know, in terms of where the next wave of disruption is coming from, it's not difficult for us to see, but we've not only got LinkedIn and Indeed that are very powerful globally, LinkedIn now owned by Microsoft, Google's just entered jobs, Facebook's just entered jobs, um, who knows how long before someone like an Amazon enters jobs, so really it's such a big category, um, and it's so important to people, that mm. I think our assumption is the biggest and the best will be in there. Um, so unless we're really not only ahead but moving very, very fast and always evolving our business, um, we're going to be in trouble. And I think that the truth is I think most Australian companies face the same threats. I just don't think too many figured it out, you know. And I think we've got the advantage of kind of knowing that if we don't move really fast, we won't be globally competitive. You know, we talk about we talk about the fact that we must be the best in the world at what we do. And the logic is very simple. If we're not best in the world at what we do, that means somebody's better than us. And if somebody's better than us, they're going to beat us. Um, and I think that logic probably applies to most industries. I'd like to see more people kind of expressing that logic and pushing that direction. Now, one of your great successes, of course, is uh, now drawing a majority of your revenues from overseas, uh, not something that most uh, big Australian companies can boast of. Uh, I understand you've moved into those overseas markets initially by taking minority stakes in other, in, in other companies and then growing them into majority stakes. Uh, have you uh, found that that's been uh, a, an effective strategy for uh, for approaching markets. You can put the journalists out of business very quickly. You've done your research very well. That is that's how it's been. Look, it's been it's been. I think we originally thought about the idea. We started looking internationally in about two thousand and one, and then because we had no money and they didn't really just need our brains, it didn't really work very well. But we went back in about two thousand five, two thousand six, and by then we figured out that going to a market like China um, ourselves as Seek was going to be unsuccessful. There are plenty of smart Chinese. Um, doing a great job there. So the starting point was always we can actually help a good company and a good team get better rather than the fact that we could beat these good teams in a, in a foreign market. Mm. I think that logic was a little bit more humble approach to, to going overseas has really been the right approach for our sort of business. So it's hard to compete organically anyway with these businesses, but, but with the lack of local knowledge, 
going up against local owners would be harder again or if not impossible. I think most people have found that. So that did lead to our approach of starting with minorities, moving to majorities over time, but working with local teams and backing them and helping them rather than trying to assume we could compete ourselves. And that's worked very, very well for us. Has it given you a sense as to what makes an Australian management style unique? Um, yeah, look, I think, I think probably for us, I think Australian companies do have an advantage in Asia. Um, around the fact that they're, they're more willing to prioritise it. American companies tend to think of Europe first and Asia second is the extent they think of expansion. But also perhaps a little bit more humble approach, a little bit more understanding that Asia is not one country. It's a series of countries with, with very different markets. Um, the, the people are different, the cultures are different. And you need to be a little bit more slow, a little bit more sensitive. You need to not assume that everything's going to be the same and the strategies or the approach you applied in Australia is going to necessarily work over there. So I think... And it's just the experience a lot of Australians have worked in Asia and had some success that gives you a management pool to draw from. So I think there are some advantages Australian companies have in Asia. I don't think we're exploiting it as aggressive as we should be right now. I don't think the window will be open forever. Do you enjoy the uh, the overseas work? Um, yeah, I don't enjoy the travel. I mean, no one enjoys travel, right? That's, With four and, kids. And if I was going to be completely selfish, I might have chosen you know France and Fiji or other, or other markets rather than the ones we're in. Um, but... Um, oh, look, it's exciting for us. You know, when we talk about helping people as our purpose, you know, part of the attraction to China um, is all of a sudden there's billions of people we can help rather than tens of millions of people. Um, and the fact that we've actually, you know, taken a business, had a really, you know, it's taken us 12 years. Um, but the fact that we've taken on the challenge in China, we've probably had five years of every shareholder telling us to back out of there and um, we've been punished for being there rather than being rewarded for being there. And the fact that we've persevered in markets like China and had success now is obviously, it gives us all a sense of achievement. Do you uh, do you have tips or tricks for staying sane when you're on the road? Um, oh, no, I don't really. If anyone, if you speak to anyone who travels with me, I'm, I, I don't really stay sane when I'm on the road. So I'm, I'm, I'm the wrong, I'm the wrong <laughs> person to ask. I'm the most impatient. Tra- I'm the most impatient person in the world, but I'm a particularly bad traveller. So you're asking the wrong person. I'm sorry. What makes you a bad traveller? I just get very. I get. It doesn't take much to, to get me frustrated or impatient or accuse me a bit slowly or the guy. The you know my guy's a bit slower than the next guy in terms of processing visas or those things. So I'm not a very good traveller. I'm sorry. We've gone into too much detail. But I'm Probably shouldn't have admitted any of this, but if I'd said if I'd said if I'd said the opposite, anyone who's travelled with me would have called you up and contradicted you. So, <laughs> uh, now uh, one of the things that really impresses me about you is uh, is your skills at the poker table. Uh, you are a seriously good poker player. Um, what is it that you uh, that that poker teaches you about being able to uh, to, uh, to be a good manager? Um, maybe business. Look, I enjoy poker. It's um, you, you really have done your research. It's um, it's a bit of business strategy, but in a in a shorter form. So it really is. A, there's definitely luck involved, which lets me sit down with some good players and have a chance that I'll beat them, even though I probably won't. I feel I've got a chance. There's enough luck involved, but there really is a lot of skill, a lot of thinking. And usually, when you've you've done well or you've done badly in a tournament, it's because you've played well or you've played badly. Um, and it's just uh, the thought process is fantastic. You know, trying to think about what you've got, trying to think about what they've got, trying to think about um, just everything is. There's so many variables in a game of poker. That getting it right feels good. Getting it wrong feels um, you know, something to learn from. Do you manage differently the the week after uh, you've played a big tournament than than the than the week before? Does it give you a sort uh, of well, like I, a sense I, of cal- I, calmness? I, I've, I've got a job, and there may be a shareholder or two listening. I play about a tournament a year because I just don't. Yeah, have, no, yeah. absolutely. But I, I don't. I just don't have time, so I just have to play anymore. So probably when I when I do leave this job, I probably will play a few more tournaments. But, um, oh. 
Look, I, it's, it's, I play one, two tournaments a year, and I don't, if I played more, I don't know if I'd um, feel the same. It's, it's exciting for me because I mm. do it so rarely, and it probably lets me concentrate for the few days the tournament takes because I do it so rarely. I think if I was playing more regularly, it might be more of a grind, if it makes sense. But it's, it's not that dissimilar from business, right? I mean, there's that lovely, lovely line from Phil Helmuth that uh, if it was a pure game of skill, I'd win every time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and, and yeah. That, that element of luck, as you say, comes into uh, the prospects for Seek in the future. You just never know who's going to enter the market yeah. and how they're going to disrupt you. I think... Um I think that's right, but you should play poker as well, by the way, do you? Or, uh, yeah, no, yeah. I have an, I have oh, an interest in it, but I don't play. Oh, okay, no, no, I can teach you. But the, um, the maybe not. Um, yeah, look, business strategy is similar. You, you try to rely less on luck in business strategy, so you really try to position yourself so that you um, you, you need to take risks, um, but the risk you take in poker, which is, you know, there's a, a 66% chance you're going to lose the hand and be out of the tournament, you never want to take in, in business. Um, but I think there were similarities to the thought process that really the more usually, you know, when you make mistakes in either, you look back and say, really, there's an error I should have thought of more deeply. And in hindsight, had I thought more fully or had I done a better job of, of strategizing, I might not have made that mistake. Um, that probably happens. You've got more that you can control in business than you can in poker. And so therefore, mm. that deep strategizing, that thought um, becomes more important. Right, right. Yes, I've argued elsewhere that uh, too many people see politics as being a game of chess, whereas politics has much more in common with poker than chess. Um, uh, maybe because <laughs> yeah, because there's, there's there's definitely some luck involved in charming and yeah. Yes, and that, you know the, ch- the advantage we get is we can look. Shareholders don't always love it, but we can measure things over a few year time period. Mm. You know, so for China, if we'd measured anything less than an eight year time period, it would have seemed to be failures. Politicians don't get that luxury, you know, Indeed, and, yeah. and and most businesses don't get that luxury. Um, so the stuff that, that you know, long term optimization by definition, um, you know, when you use the word optimizing, you, you can't optimize for the short term, the long term. Um, and most businesses operate on too short a time frame, and politicians are forced to. So I have a lot of sympathy for you. It's very difficult to take a long term approach that I think is what the country needs, but it's very hard. How do we encourage more of that in business? More of that kind of long term. Oh, I think thinking? look, I think to some extent. Look, I'm lucky because I'm a founder. It gives you a bit of license that you might not get as a new CEO. I've had a supportive board for the most part that allows us to take a long-term view. And periodically we've had shareholders annoyed at us when we say we're going to invest more. Usually the response from shareholders is very negative. The degree of criticism, the share price goes down. But we've been, we've been big enough to just wear it through and not care. Mm. Look, it's harder for a new CEO, but I really think you need the boards and the CEO to say, we're going to do this. This is what's right for the company. We're going to front up to shareholders and say, I know this is not what you want to hear this time, but this is what we're doing and this is why. And you do find there are some good long-term supportive shareholders out there who will gravitate to you when you're willing to stand up against the short-term guys. So there's people like Fidelity um, Capital and a bunch of shareholders that have supported us really for a long, long time mm. who really like the long-term messages and give us, you know, at least there's one meeting out of the 10 I join the roadshow where they're not beating me up. And um, that gives you a bit of confidence behind your strategy. So then potentially we need more investors who are uh, who are thinking about that. Yeah, in, that in, investors are very short-term. They need, you know, and they're in turn ma- measured on a mm. very short-term basis by their own investors but you know, think, when you think about the quarterly measurement of super funds and the, and the really high emphasis on short term returns and the fact that on average people's money is in bloody super funds for 20 years it's pretty screwed <laughs> you know it's just wrong yes. um, and it really is leading it's helping to lead companies down a path of being way too short term focused and as a result none of them not, not, that's unfair CEOs are trying their best it's really hard to get license from your shareholders to take a five year view 
And if you want to be globally competitive, if you want to deal with the fact that eventually people like Google's of the world or the Amazon's, there will be competitors, you have to invest. Mm. Um, if you want to grow over time, if you want to give yourselves the scale to be globally successful, you've got to go to markets like Asia or elsewhere to give yourselves the scale to compete with the biggest and best. Um, but people aren't getting licensed for their shareholders at the moment to do that. I mean, one of the things people say makes Silicon Valley is that you've got a lot of entrepreneurs turn investors, uh, people yeah. who are willing to, to put up capital, uh, yeah. know, know, having gone through that experience themselves of, of hard times before, they, before things they've, turn good. They've got some massive advantage. They've got that. They've got the fact there's so many shareholders who are used to that sort of growth path and willing to allow people to invest, recognise that actually you need to invest to grow, that there's not much joy mm. in just returning dividends. Um, and cutting costs, which is where many Australian companies are in the cycle. Many Australian companies are in the cycle of doing. They've got things called founder share that I'd love to have, um, which basically lets the founders say piss off to the share market. And if you don't, you know, they've got extra voting rights. And if, if shareholders can choose who they follow, if founders are explicit about what they're doing, that if they're investing long term and, and mm, everything else, mm. shareholders can follow or not follow. But I can't boot out the founder that's pushing down that path and a range of other advantages. Yes. Um, so to, uh, to, to wrap up, Andrew, uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? The what advice would you give to your teenage self? Oh, my, te- my teenage self, gee, my teenage was, was um, irredeemable. I don't know where I could start. But um, oh, look, it's, it's, you know, it's worked out okay. You know, more for other teenagers. I, I, I got a little bit lucky. I didn't really, you know, didn't really know what I wanted to do until I probably got to about 30. When I started working with Seek is when I started to really get passionate and committed. Before that, I kind of mucked around a bit. But I, I did keep my options open. Um, but really it's finding something you're passionate about so the sooner you find something you're passionate about I think for everyone um, that's when you tend to do a good job that's when you enjoy yourself at work Um, doing stuff because it looks good on the CV or doing stuff because um, somebody else tells you that's what you should be passionate about never works as well What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um, oh, gee, you're not talking about Father Christmas or Easter Bunny or any of that stuff. <laughs> um, they are oh, possible answers. No, but look, you know, probably the big change for me has been, like, you know, when I started, and you know, it's just a bunch of people I've worked with moved me down the path. I used to be much more pure logic, and it was, you know, I had strategy background. It was always about the intellect. I've really learned to trust instincts and, and how much the, the, both the people side and the instinctive side. Uh, uh, as important, if not more important, the logical side. So that's probably not so much directly answering your question, but that's the closest I can get. Where did you learn those skills on the people side? Oh, making mistakes. <laughs> yeah, making plenty of mistakes. You know, my you know my partner Matt Rotman quite a few times. He and I disagreed on candidates, and because he didn't have a good explanation, the per- person I preferred the CV looked better and more the fit fit with what we needed, because he didn't necessarily articulate as logically as I might have why he didn't like that candidate. I tended to just go with them, but I was wrong every time and I started to learn that, you know, just the, the, the instincts that said this person's not right, even if you can't explain it, tend to always be right, if that makes sense. And, and since then, every time my instincts have told me not to, do, to go with a person or not to go with a deal, um, I've just trusted those instincts and I've, I've really been wrong once you've had that feeling that some, somebody or something's not right. Usually yeah, those instincts are pretty sound. Works in poker as well, by the way. Interesting. When are you most happy? Um, oh, good question. Am I, uh, when am I most happy? It's all a relative concept, isn't it? But it's more, more, to be honest, I enjoy work, but more family and friends, of course. So spending relaxed time with family and friends, perhaps because I work hard, is, is the time where you're most relaxed and happy, of course. Are all four children still at home at the moment? Um, all still at home. One, one sort of threatening at some point to go out, which we, we desperately don't <laughs> want. But yeah, so all four at home. Just finished exams last week at the office, so. Congratulations to uh, him or her. Um, 
what's the most important thing you do to stay physically and mentally healthy? Um, yeah, look, exercise is important. I mean, time my family and friends is obviously important. Exercise has become a bit of an issue because I keep hurting myself. So I had a shoulder operation three weeks ago and on my left one and I've had hamstring injuries, but I tend to try to like playing a bit of soccer or touch rugby or something. Um, when I'm not doing that, I'm not as fit, then it's not as good. But it, so I'm a bit, I play for a month, then I injure myself and then I'm off for two months. So I've got to probably find something a bit more age appropriate. Maybe a non-contact sport, perhaps? Yeah, maybe, maybe non Well, maybe play with people who are a bit older than 20, 25 or something. That would happen, <laughs> yeah. Do you have any guilty pleasures? Um, uh, not, not that I'd probably talk about, but I'd probably just eat, and I'd probably just eat and drink immoderately and badly, and all the rest of it is my... Um, I keep telling myself I should have better diet and I should drink less, but both are too much fun, so... And which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Um, oh, look, um, it's a tough question. I think you probably sent it to me. I didn't get that far down the list. I'm sorry. Um, oh, look, my parents, you know, probably lucky to be brought up in a household where my parents just always did the right thing. And that was a that was a very normal thing. They never really punished us, but they always made it pretty clear when we'd, we'd gone down the wrong path. And I do think a lot comes from the family in terms of, you know, that's probably the thing we most try to teach our kids. Um, is the ba- although they figured out themselves pretty well at the basic wrongs and rights. And if you learn that right when you're young, it probably sticks with you. Andrew Bassett, thank you for taking the time to uh, speak on the Good Life podcast today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.